Our Enemies in Blue, Police and Power in America by Christian Williams. This is the second of two parts of Chapter 7 entitled Secret Police, Red Squads, and the Strategy of Permanent Repression. The Death of the Red Squads? Paradoxically, the silencing of dissent may itself undercut the public's faith in the government's benevolence. The 1970s were characterized by massive public distrust in governing bodies, especially the federal intelligence agencies, but also their local counterparts. Along with the Watergate scandals, other startling revelations shook, police shook public confidence in the government. A researcher for the Pentagon, Daniel Ellsberg, leaked the Defense Department's secret history of the Vietnam War, revealing that the public had been deceived about the aims and methods of the war, and specifically about American atrocities. Anonymous persons similarly released a series of documents stolen from the FBI office in Medea, Pennsylvania, detailing the operations grouped under the heading COINTELPRO. It's quite ironic that the best tool for proving official misconduct by federal agencies turned out to be their own cherished files. In an effort to salvage credibility, congressional committees and special prosecutors tried to come clean. Even the intelligence agencies themselves tried to rehabilitate their public image. COINTELPRO and similar programs were quickly discontinued and on the local level, opponents of police spying took the opportunity to move against the Red Squads. So what kills a Red Squad? In Washington, D.C., it was a combination of lawsuits and pressure from city council. In Birmingham, it was the success of civil rights efforts and the shift of power that accompanied it. Official investigations and a change in local st statuses did in the Baltimore unit. A series of court rulings, a change in political climate, the election of a liberal mayor, attacks in the media, and a sudden loss of allies conspired against the Red Squad in Detroit. A series of scandals finally cost the Los Angeles unit the last of its credibility, leading to its breakup. In Philadelphia, it was the combination of a federal civil rights commission investigation, lawsuits, judicial rulings, and a loss of public support stemming from widespread corruption. In Seattle, a city ordinance outlawed the Red Squad's activities. In Memphis and Chicago, lawsuits produced constant decrees limiting political investigations. A change in political climate brought New York City a liberal mayor and a police commissioner. Combined with lawsuits, court rulings, and an overall loss of credibility, the change of administration spelled doom for the Red Squad. Of the various weapons used against the Red Squads, the most common was litigation. But the political climate may well have been more important to the success of such legal action than either the law or the facts of the case. Author Ken Lawrence describes the limits of legal victories. Quote, legal reforms are more reflective of the political climate than they are a way of creating a favorable climate. So it's a mistake to regard a legal forum as itself a particularly useful way to create an improved political situation. If you win an injunction, that's more a sign that you have prevailed in changing the political climate. But it doesn't for a minute mean that it's going to place any serious restraint on the actions of the police." Unquote. Success is rarely total or permanent. Political repression didn't end with the defeat of the Red Squads any more than it ended with the termination of COINTELPRO, the death of J. Edgar Hoover, the resignation of Nixon, or the retirement of Captain Shack decades before. Repression continues as a permanent feature of capitalist society and as a central function of the state. The changes necessary to remove it, then, are far deeper than anything that we can expect from the courts. Judges issued a series of favorable rulings. However, as Donner put it, quote, the plaintiffs won all the battles but lost the war, unquote. 
Maintaining the conditions established by the courts was a separate fight, and a difficult one, since even judges themselves proved very reluctant to enforce the rules the courts established, and police activity resisted reform, sometimes through loyally quibbling, sometimes by dragging their feet, sometimes through dirty tricks. In 1976, Judge James Montante ordered the Detroit Police Department and the Michigan State Police to turn their files over to the people listed in them. Four years later, the state police finally complied with this order. The Detroit police never did. Instead, Mayor Coleman Young simply dissolved the Red Squad and transferred its files to other units in the department. Elsewhere, the police responded to lawsuits by destroying files, thus preempting the legal discovery process, the courts attempt to inspect them, and any possible orders to make them public. This occurred in Memphis, Seattle, Chicago, and in a case involving the Mississippi Highway Patrol. In Los Angeles, the police hid the files and just claimed they had been destroyed. Red Squad Detective Jay Paul rescued over a hundred cartons of documents, storing them in several locations, including his own home. More than a dozen cops helped Paul with the move. Several others, including lieutenants and captains, knew this was happening, allowed it, and even approved the use of department resources and staff time to assist in the effort. In 1983, Portland Police Bureau Intelligence Officer and John Birch Society member Winfield Falk undertook a similar task stealing files that were headed for the shredder, taking them home and adding to them on his own for several years. Ranging from a 1924 Communist Party membership card to a 1986 anti-apartheid flyer, the files contained information on 576 organizations and more than 3,000 individuals. Falk's files provide an unnerving glimpse at the tactics employed by police agents. They detail the use of informants, and a 1972 document offers explicit instructions on infiltrating and disrupting dissident groups. A COINTELPRO-style dirty tricks are similarly discussed. When a black activist's mother overheard someone offer to sell her son dynamite, she accused the police of trying to entrap the young man. Officer Mike Salmon took a report and forwarded it to the head of intelligence, Lieutenant Melvin Corky Hewlett, along with a note. Quote, I'm sending this direct to you, bypassing records, and I'll let you decide what to do with the report. For all we know, what Miss Anderson says is true. It sounds sneaky, but a good idea." Unquote. Many of the files contain no allegations of criminal wrongdoing, but focus instead on personal information, including financial records, job applications, speculation about the subject's sexual orientation, and family photos. Collecting such information on people not suspected of crimes has been against police bureau policies since 1975, and after 1981 it violated state law as well. But many of Falk's reports were addressed to senior officers, indicating that police commanders knew what he was up to. While careful to deny knowledge of the file's existence, former Portland Police Chief Penny Harrington recounted an episode in 1985 when Falk called her to report on the activities of liberal city councilors alleging they were out to, quote, take over the city government, unquote. Harrington wasn't surprised to hear that Falk had kept the files for his own use. Quote, that was happening all over the country at the time. Files were ending up in people's garages and basements, unquote. File rescues has, have occurred as recently as November 1990, when San Francisco Police Chief Willis Casey shut down his department's Red Squad. Instead of destroying the squad's files, Officer Tom Gerard moved them to his home, from there, he distributed the documents to the Anti-Defamation League of B'nai B'rith, who passed them on to the Israel government, and also to the apartheid government of South Africa. In total, Gerard maintained files on thousands of Arab Americans, 36 Arab groups, 33 anti-apartheid groups, 412 pinko organizations, 
349 right-wing groups, and 35 skinhead gangs, as well as the ACLU, the National Lawyers Guild, Mother Jones Magazine, the United Auto Workers, the Board of Directors of KQED, a public television station, the Black Studies Department at San Francisco University, Democratic politicians, and journalists. When Gerard's operation was discovered, it touched off a major scandal, but Richard Hirschout, the executive director of the Anti-Defamation League's Central Pacific region, shrugged off the controversy. Quote, the relationship we had with him was the same as with thousands of police officers around the country, unquote. Indeed, when the SFPD and FBI raided Benibarith offices in San Francisco and Los Angeles, they discovered that the organization was keeping computerized files on nearly 10,000 people. Approximately 75% of the data in the files had been obtained illegally from police, federal agents, or the Department of Motor Vehicles. As municipal red squads closed up shop, the burden of political repression was moved off of the city police departments and onto county or state agencies. At the end of the 1970s, as city police were getting out of the spy business, at least officially, state units were formed in California, Connecticut, Maryland, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, New Hampshire, and Georgia. A simultaneous charade was being played out at the federal level. Quote, By discontinuing use of the term COINTELPRO, the Bureau gave the appearance of acceding to public and congressional pressure. In reality, it protected its capacity to continue precisely the same activity under other names. Decentralization of covert operations vastly reduced the volume of required reporting. It dispersed the remaining documentation to individual case files in diverse field offices, and it purged these files of any captions suggesting domestic covert action." Unquote. From the FBI's perspective, the problem with COINTELPRO was that it created a paper trail leading to its exposure. The solution, then, lay not in discontinuing the operation, but in decentralizing it, thus making it far less vulnerable. One innovation, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, JTTF, allowed both local and federal agencies to sidestep restrictions on their activities by working together. JTTFs are composed of agents from numerous local, state, and federal agencies, and headed by the FBI. Since local cops are ostensibly acting as federal agents, their activities are not subject to the supervision of local authorities, and the information they collect remains secret. The FBI, meanwhile, can rely on these other agencies to do the heavy lifting, thus avoiding the unseemly impression of excessive federal involvement. Accountability disappears in a bureaucratic shell game. Really, this is an old story. When New York's anarchist squad was disbanded in 1914, its responsibilities were shifted to the bomb squad. Overt harassment was replaced with clandestine operations, and within a few months the bomb squad had an undercover unit. A similar tale can be told about the Detroit Red Squad, which was abolished in 1939 after a far-reaching scandal, only to be revived a few months later with World War II as a justification. Its activities were then taken up in cooperation with the FBI. At least some of those responsible for the reforms of the late 70s and early 80s knew about this history, and understood how fragile their gains really were. Richard Gutman, an attorney with the Alliance to End Repression, said in 1982, quote, History teaches that the intensity of political surveillance is not constant. It ebbs and flows. When the political establishment feels its power or policies threatened, political surveillance will resume. That resumption may be marked by a court-ordered revision of or our injunction based on changed circumstances. Unquote. And indeed, 18 years later, the Chicago Consent Decree fell. In keeping with Gutman's prediction, the court decided that, quote, 
the era in which the Red Squad flourished is history along with the Red Squad itself. The instabilities of that era have largely disappeared. Fear of communist subversion, so strong a motivator of constitutional infringements in those days, has disappeared along with the Soviet Union and the Cold War. Legal controls over the police, legal sanctions for infringement of constitutional rights have multiplied. The culture that created and nourished the Red Squad has evaporated. Has evaporated. The consent decree has done its job. Unquote. The consent decree's final test began in 1996, when the Democratic National Convention was set in Chicago, and active resistance and anarchist counter-convention was scheduled to coincide with it. Despite court-mediated limits on such activities, police, both in uniform and in civilian clothing, lurked around the anarchist meeting halls and patrol cars frequently cruised by, slowing down when passing a conference participant on her way in or out. Police even conducted surveillance from a helicopter, hovering over the conference area while participants ate a picnic lunch. Witnesses reported being followed, threatened, photographed, and questioned by police, and cops repeatedly attempted to gain entry to the meeting space. A demonstration connected with active resistance was attacked by police using horses and nightsticks, and those arrested were interrogated about their political views, their participation in protest activity, and related matters. Finally, on August 29, 1996, the conference space was raided by several officers wearing uniforms but no badges. They ordered everyone to the ground, pushing down or pepper-spraying those who refused. They searched conference participants' belongings and seized papers they deemed subversive to the government of the United States. When the Alliance to End Repression, joined by the active resistance organizers and others, sued to enforce the consent decree, Judge Joan Gotchell rejected out of hand the testimony of numerous witnesses and found that the police had not violated the court order. Following her ruling, a U.S. appeals court accepted the city's motion to lift most of the restrictions the consent decree had established, citing changes in the political climate, in political culture, and in the mission of intelligence agencies. But Whatever the court might think, the attack on active resistance in 1996 foreshadowed similar police tactics, overt and secret, used against the larger wave of protest activity beginning in 1999. It also showed that the guys in trench coats were still up to their old tricks. The Unreported Repression The 80s and 90s are commonly thought to be times of social peace and political conservatism. Yet, those two decades were punctuated with surges of activism concerning nuclear disarmament, U.S. Pol policies in Central America, gay and lesbian rights, the AIDS crisis, abortion rights, the Gulf War, police brutality, immigrants' rights, the environment, prison expansion, and economic globalization. And as before, these movements were met with repression and police interference. For example, in 1986, Christopher McKinney was arrested during a demonstration against President Reagan's proposed missile defense system. He filed a lawsuit and, in so doing, unearthed an intelligence operation involving the local police, the U.S. Marshals, the Air Force, and Lockheed. With federal direction, two Sunnyville, California cops, Tom Piatanesi and Dave White, had infiltrated student peace groups. Piatanesi later identified activists to be arrested at the demonstration. In Portland, Oregon, in 1993, a scuffle broke out between youth at a punk rock show and the riot police who had surrounded the venue and refused to let them leave. Thirty-one people were arrested, among them Douglas Squirrel. Squirrel had left the show early, but was arrested anyway, because, as a police spokesperson, Derek Foxworth, explained, police files identified him as the, quote, leader of the anarchists, unquote. Files released during the trial revealed an extensive pattern of political surveillance, much of it in violation of Oregon law. 
In particular, informants had been used against groups with no criminal history, including those lobbying for a civilian board to hear complaints against the police. Squirrel was acquitted, and a subsequent lawsuit produced a ruling limiting police surveillance activities to those attached to an ongoing criminal investigation. Despite the judge's ruling, the surveillance continued. After a 1998 protest against the bombing of Iraq, another activist, Dan Handelman, was surprised to see his name in a police report, with a brief synopsis of his political work. Quote, the Peace and Justice Works Iraq Affinity Group has held numerous protests in the Portland area concerning U.S. involvement with Iraq. This group is headed by a subject named Dan Handelman, who has been very active in calling for arranging and sponsoring these demonstrations. Unquote. Handelman was not arrested at the event, and this political information, likely drawn from other files, had no bearing on any criminal case. Together, these examples show that the police are loath to respect any restrictions placed on their operations, whether by the, legislative, the legislature or by the courts, and that the agitator subversion thesis remains alive and well. In fact, though not yet apparent on the larger scale, there are indications of COINTELPRO-style abuses and even outright atrocities during the Reagan-Bush-Clinton years. Consider, for instance, the case of Judy Berry, bombed by persons unknown, then unsuccessfully framed by the Oakland police and the FBI. Barry was seriously injured on March 24, 1990, when a pipe bomb exploded under the seat of her car. Daryl Cherney was also in the vehicle, and was also injured, though not as badly. The two were members of the radical environmental group Earth First, and were in the middle of organizing a civil disobedience campaign against logging in Northern California. In the weeks before the attack, they had received numerous death threats, which the police declined to investigate. When the bomb exploded, the cops, under the always helpful guidance of the FBI, were quick to blame the victims. Barry and Cherney were arrested for transporting explosives and branded in the media as terrorists. But the physical evidence did not match the official theory that Barry and Cherney were knowingly transporting explosives. The damage to the car and to Barry herself indicated that the bomb was under the driver's seat, not in the back seat where the police said it had been. The DA declined to prosecute, the police refused to look for other suspects, and Barry and Cherney sued. The lawsuit brought forth evidence suggestive of possibilities far more sinister than simple incompetence, including details of an FBI-run bomb school held on Lumber Company property weeks before the explosion. In the course of the training, Special Agent Frank Doyle simulated a bombing identical to that which injured Barry and Cherney a month later. The jury became convinced that Barry and Cherney's civil rights had been violated, and in June 2002 awarded them $4.4 million. The jury explicitly recognized the political motivations behind the police misconduct. Violations of the plaintiff's First Amendment rights represented 80% of the damages. One unnamed juror told the press Democrat, quote, There were too many lies and manipulation of the evidence, and way too much guilt by association. Law enforcement isn't supposed to do that. Unquote. Another juror concurred, saying, quote, Now every time I hear anything about the FBI where they made an arrest, I question it. That's what this experience taught me. Unquote. But for Barry, justice delayed really was justice denied. She died of cancer while the case was still in litigation. During the last quarter of the 20th century, however, no set of events are as dramatically damning of police intelligence operations as the Philadelphia Police Department's campaign against MOVE. MOVE is a radical Afrocentric anti-technology organization inspired by the teachings of John Africa. After neighbors lodged noise and sanitation complaints against the group, 
Police used eight-foot-high fences to blockade the four-block area around the home of the organization's members. From May 1977 until March 1978, the Powelton neighborhood came, close, came to resemble an armed camp. Under the command of Red Squad Lieutenant George Fenkel, the area was only accessible through a police checkpoint. Residents were required to show ID to enter and were escorted to their homes by police. Friends and family were only permitted inside if they had been previously listed by residents and if they received police approval. Residents could only leave their homes with permission from the police. The whole operation cost $2 million, required 1,000 officers, and ended with a shootout. One cop was killed and 18 other people injured, 12 police and firefighters, 6 members and supporters of MOVE. This was immediately followed by the beating of MOVE leader Delbert Africa as he tried to surrender. A few years later, the neighborhood suffered another poorly conceived police action. Allegedly trying to serve four arrest warrants, cops fired into the MOVE house and then used a helicopter to bomb the building. Eleven people were killed, including five children. Sixty-one homes were destroyed in the fire that followed, leaving 250 people homeless. A commission established to study the incident found that police gunfire had prevented the residents of the house from evacuating, and noted that the, quote, firing of over 10,000 rounds of ammunition in under 90 minutes at a row house containing children was clearly excessive and unreasonable, unquote. The courts have tended to agree with this assessment, and the city of Philadelphia has paid more than $33 million in damages related to the incident. Still, no government official has ever faced criminal charges for the massacre. In sharp contrast, Ramona Africa, the one adult survivor, spent the next seven years in prison. Like so many others, this atrocity was the joint work of local and federal authorities. MOVE members cataloged the weaponry used against them. Tear gas, water cannons, shotguns, Uzis, M16s, Browning automatic rifles, M60 machine guns, a 20mm anti-tank gun, and a 50 caliber machine gun, plus of course a mom. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms granted the police special permission for this arsenal, and the FBI provided 37.5 rounds pounds of C4 plastic explosives several months before the final attack. Philadelphia's first black mayor, W. Wilson Good, justified the military approach, quote, what we have out there is war, unquote. Move's neighbors had a different word for it. As they gathered on the streets, their homes burning, they chanted at the police, murder, murder. A new day in secret government. In terms of official repression, the 21st century may come to surpass the 20th. Repressive operations have only escalated and accelerated since the September 11, 2001 attacks on the Pentagon and the World Trade Center. Both the domestic security forces and the military have used the climate of fear following the attacks to justify radical expansion of their activities. Around the country, police pressed for increased powers and sought relief from the limits imposed in the 1970s and the FBI took the opportunity to expand its JTTF program, adding 21 new task forces, so that there is one attached to each of its 56 field offices. Just weeks after the attacks, Congress did its part to advance the domestic espionage agenda, passing the Uniting and Strengthening America by providing appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism, USA Patriot Act. The Washington Post described the law. Quote, 
Molded by wartime politics and passed in furious haste, the new anti-terrorism bill lays the foundation for a domestic intelligence gathering system of unprecedented scale and technological prowess, according to both supporters and critics of the legislation. The bill effectively tears down a legal firewall erected 25 years ago during the Watergate era, unquote. Or, as the ACLU's Dave Fidank put it, quote, this is the dawn of a new day in secret government, unquote. The Patriot Act represents the Palmer Raids and Watergate-style black bag jobs rolled into one and stamped with the Congressional approval. Passed and signed on October 26, 2001, this law expanded the definition of terrorism, reduced the legal rights of immigrants, and granted the police greater powers to conduct surveillance while limiting judicial oversight. The Patriot Act created a new crime, that of domestic terrorism. According to the ACLU, quote, the new offense threatens to transform protesters into terrorists if they engage in conduct that involves acts dangerous to human life. Then, under this law, the dominoes begin to fall. Those who provide lodging or other assistance to these domestic terrorists could have their homes wiretapped and could be prosecuted. Unquote. The effect is to formalize guilt by association, allowing the Secretary of State to designate any group that has ever engaged in violence as a terrorist organization. Those who have lent assistance to such groups, whether or not their assistance was connected to terrorism, are subject to scrutiny, including searches and wiretaps. Worse still, the secretary can secretly designate a group as a terrorist, and the decision to detain an individual lies with the authority, with the attorney general, not the courts. The ACLU elaborates, quote, Non-citizens could also be detained or deported for providing assistance to groups that are not designated as terrorist organizations at all, as long as activity of the group satisfies an extraordinarily broad definition of terrorism that covers virtually all violent activity. Such groups as the World Trade Organization protesters, the Vieques protesters, and even People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals would, on the basis of minor acts of violence or vandalism, meet this overbroad definition." Unquote. The law also damages privacy rights by encouraging secret searches, increasing eavesdropping, and removing many protections for confidential information. Section 213 allows police to search a person's property without notifying her that a warrant has been issued. Likewise, Section 216 allows for increased surveillance of electronic communication, removes most restrictions on the use of wiretaps, and substantially limits the role of judicial review essentially giving law enforcement a free hand to monitor telecommunications. As the ACLU points out, quote, most of the changes apply not just to surveillance of terrorists, but instead to all surveillance in the United States, unquote. By authorizing such practices while preventing any effective oversight, the law opens the door for more and greater abuses of power. By legitimizing many tactics previously used in secret, it makes it easier for police to play more dirty tricks behind the scenes. The Patriot Act also restructured the American security forces and shifted their priorities. The law increased information sharing between the FBI, CIA, NSA, INS, and Secret Service, and granted them access to previously off-limits grand jury information. Section 203 allows the CIA to share information with whomever they choose, including foreign governments. While the CIA is still barred from performing domestic police or intelligence functions, it is allowed to cooperate with the agencies that do this work. The FBI, meanwhile, quote, must shift its primary focus from investigating and prosecuting past crimes to identifying threats of future terrorist attacks, unquote. 
As if the Patriot Act weren't enough, a year later Congress began again bolstered the power of security forces, this time ordering the largest bureaucratic reorganization since the creation of the Defense Department. The Homeland Security Act, passed in November 2002, incorporated 170,000 employees from 22 agencies into an integrated domestic anti-terrorism apparatus, the Department of Homeland Security. The Homeland Security Department will centrally manage tasks related to sharing information, monitoring electronic communications, regulating the borders, responding to emergencies, and coordinating local anti-terrorism efforts. It includes 74,300 armed federal agents and takes on many of the tasks formerly performed by the INS, Customs, the Coast Guard, and the Border Patrol. Additionally, under Title II of the Homeland Security Act, the Directorate of Information Analysis and Infrastructure Protection is charged with creating a database on individuals' credit card purchases, telephone calls, banking transactions, and travel. This information is to be used to create profiles with which to identify future suspects. The Bush administration has extended its reach even further. Through a series of executive orders, administrative rules, and memoranda, President George W. Bush and former Attorney General John Ashcroft have openly ignored even the meager restrictions established by the Patriot Act and Homeland Security laws, not to mention the limits spelled out in the Bill of Rights. A September 20, 2001 executive order allows the INS to hold a person without charges for an unspecified, quote, reasonable period of time, unquote. According to an October 31, 2001 interim regulation, detainees who have been ordered released by a court may still be held until the order can be appealed. Another interim regulation issued on the same date allows federal authorities to monitor privileged attorney-client communications, and new Department of Justice rules allow local and state police to be deputized for immigration control. Perhaps most chilling, a November 2001 executive order authorized the use of military tribunals to try enemy combatants, including U.S. citizens. As the Center for Constitutional Right points out, this order, quote, gives the president the power to decide who will be tried under the new system to create the rules by which the trial will proceed, to appoint those who will serve as judge, prosecutor, and defense attorney, to set penalties once guilt is determined, including death, and to decide all appeals, unquote. These unilateral extensions of executive power have prompted predictable court battles, the final outcomes of which have yet to be determined, as of 2004. While legal maneuvering and bureaucratic infighting have a great many detail, leave a great many details in flux, the overall direction of events is clear enough. Toward government secrecy, away from individual privacy, expanding state power, diminishing individual rights. Former Attorney General John Ashcroft sounded eerily like J. Edgar Hoover as he explained the administration's intentions. Quote, We're doing everything we can to identify those who would hurt us, to disrupt them, to delay them, to defeat them. Unquote. As with the Palmer Raids and the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II, the rights of immigrants have been hardest hit, though the level of actual impact has been difficult to measure. While the government proved quite enthusiastic about locking up the tired, the poor, the huddled masses, it was less eager to say exactly how many people have been detained. The official total placed the number at 1,147, a figure human rights advocates suspect is deceptively low. Many detainees were held incommunicado. They were commonly denied legal representation, and their families were not told where, or in some cases whether, they were in custody. While Ashcroft called the detainees suspected terrorists, none were charged with a crime related to terrorist activity. 
In fact, the Justice Department estimated that only 10 or 12 of those held were connected to Al-Qaeda, and documents released under the, Federal, the Freedom of Information Act show that of the first 725 arrested, 300 were of no interest to any investigation of terrorism. Yet, in a clear inversion of the presumption of innocence, the detainees were held under the pretext of minor immigration violations until the authorities could be convinced of their innocence. They were then either released or deported. Georgetown University law professor David Cole pointed out the obvious. Quote, the real reason for their incarceration is not that they worked without authorization or took too few academic credits, for example. Rather, the government used these excuses to detain them because it thinks they just might have valuable information, because it suspects them but lacks evidence to make a charge, or simply because the FBI is not yet convinced that they are innocent. Unquote. In a typical case, Haiti Hassan Omar, an Egyptian national, fell under suspicion because he made plane reservations from a Kinko's computer. On the basis of this questionable conduct, he was arrested, held for two months, and then released without charges. Or to take another case, Shaheen Haji Zadeh, a legal resident awaiting his permanent status, appeared at the INS office in Los Angeles to comply with regulations requiring the registration and fingerprinting of all Middle Eastern men over 16 years of age. He was detained, kicked in the ribs by a guard, and placed in an overcrowded cell without adequate food, water, or bathroom facilities. He was then transferred to a cold cell in the desert town of Lancaster, allowed to sleep for about an hour, moved back to L.A., and released. Haji Day was just one of hundreds of Middle Eastern men detained while attempting to comply with the new rules. As usual, the government refused to cite exact figures, but the number arrested somewhere, quote, in the low 200s, unquote. Civil rights activists, attorneys representing the detainees, and anonymous immigration officials put the number between 500 and 700. Most of those detained were in the country legally. The registration requirements thus present immigrants with a classic catch-22. Either comply with the law and risk detention, or violate the law and risk arrest. Abdallah Higazi's experience was less typical, but just as revealing. On September 11, 2001, Higazi had been staying at the Millennium Hilton Hotel with a view of the World Trade Center. Like everyone else in the building, he abandoned his room when hijacked airliners collided with the Twin Towers. Later, as Hilton employees cataloged the property left behind, a security guard reported finding an aviation radio in Higazi's room. Higazi initially denied that the radio was his, but was arrested and spent a month in solitary confinement. Then, during an FBI interrogation, he confessed to aiding the attacks, but something unexpected happened. An American pilot contacted the hotel to claim his aviation radio, and the case against Higazi disintegrated. The security guard, a former Newark cop named Ronald Ferry, admitted that he had lied to investigators about where he had found the radio. He was sentenced leniently, receiving six months of weekend detention. It would be a mistake, however, to put all the blame on Ferry. The FBI's role in this near disaster also deserves some scrutiny. Our first question should be, how exactly did they convince an innocent man to confess? And our second, why did the investigators take Ferry at his word? Even a cursory check would have drawn his credibility into question since he had been fired from the Newark Police Department for drug-related misconduct. But as the U.S. attorney in the case explained, quote, Given what the government knew, the information Ferry provided seemed more than merely plausible. The government knew that, on September 11th, Mr. Higazi was staying at the hotel next to the WTC on the 51st floor in a room with a view of the WTC. 
It knew that one of his duties in the Egyptian Air Corps was to repair aviation radios. It knew that a number of the September 11th hijackers were Egyptian nationals, and it knew that Mr. Higazi was an Egyptian national." Unquote. In other words, as federal authorities saw it, they had no reason to doubt the word of a dirty cop and every reason to suspect a foreign student. Despite its happy ending, at least when compared to the alternative, imagine if the pilot had never come back for his radio, this case remains deeply troubling and does not bode well for the nationwide terrorist dragnet. In the context of official panic and dismissed diminished rights, Higazi was accused by an unreliable informant, arrested, held in solitary confinement, and repeatedly interrogated. He was ultimately induced to confess to a crime of which he was innocent. That's the danger of witch hunts. An eager inquisitor will always find someone to burn. Rethinking Unrest We've come a long way since Haymarket. Originally, police repression focused on the behavior of crowds. Surveillance allowed the cops to respond quickly to any disturbance. But as the police began to view their role more in terms of preventing trouble, the use of surveillance increased, and intelligence operations became specialized. Police attention fail fell not only on demonstrations and individual leaders, but on meetings, organizations, and entire movements. By the 1970s, it was clear that something was lacking in the theory behind domestic intelligence work, and that the actual practice had reached far beyond whatever strategy there may once have been. The cops clung to a conspiracy model for understanding subversion, but their targets included individuals quite removed from any radical tendency whatever. The police became obsessed with ideology, but continually misread the intentions of peaceful groups and even pressed them toward violent action. Police aggressively sought to preempt subversion and prevent unrest, yet remained essentially reactive in their stance toward existing social movements. When theory advanced to address this confusion, it was the work of neither an American nor, strictly speaking, a policeman. Instead, the person who realigned the theory and practice of repression was aforementioned British military commander Frank Kitson. Kitson based his doctrine on an analysis of rebellions outlying three stages of a subversive campaign preparation, nonviolence, and insurgency. The security forces needed to be ready at every stage, beginning with the preparatory stage when everything seems calm. Despite its aims, the old model remained essentially reactive. It only responded at the second stage, when political activity became visible. Kitson's hope was to prevent the enemy from ever reaching the second stage. He wrote, quote, Looking in retrospect at any counter-subversion or counter-insurgency campaign, it's easy to see that the first step should have been to prevent the enemy from gaining an ascendancy over the civil population, and in particular to disrupt his efforts at establishing his political organization. In practice, this is difficult to achieve because for a long time the government may be unaware that a significant threat exists, and in any case, in a so-called free country, it is regarded as the opposite of freedom to restrict the, fret the spread of a political idea. Unquote. Kitson saw that previous efforts at preventing unrest had begun too late, after a threat had already developed. The task at hand was to prevent subversive ideas from finding a popular audience. Clearly, intelligence must play a central role in this pursuit. Kitson's analysis reflected an important break from assumptions fundamental to the police ideology. The early obsession with conspiracies and agitators reflected a conservative view of society. The political order was fundamentally stable, unrest was anomalous and irrational, dissent was not prompted by social conditions but by communist plots. As Frank Donner notes, quote, 
To equate dissent with subversion, as intelligence officials do, is to deny that the demand for change is based on real social, economic, or political conditions. A familiar example of this is the almost paranoid obsession with the agitator. Intelligence proceeds on the assumption that most people are reasonably contented but are incited or misled by an agitator, a figure who typically comes from outside, to stir up trouble. The task is to track down this sinister individual and bring him to account. All will then be well again." Unquote. Working from these premises, the police were incapable of understanding social movements when they arose and could do practically nothing to prevent them. Eventually, the shortcomings of this approach necessitated the shift to COINTELPRO tactics and the covert disruption of radical movements. But COINTELPRO too was essentially reactive. It sought to disorganize existing movements and isolate them from their constituencies, but could not prevent them from arising in the first place. Kitson corrected for these problems by abandoning the conservative stance. His analysis suggests that society exists in a state of permanent conflict. This would require a strategy of permanent repression, generally termed counterinsurgency. Rather than focusing solely on activists, political repression must be understood in terms of controlling whole populations. The shift from anti-communism to anti-terrorism is minor compared to the move from conspiracy theories to counterinsurgency. The latter has broadened the scope of intelligence operations and, at the same time, informed the direction of other police work. In crowd control actions and community policing programs, as well as in the work of the Red Squads, the emphasis is increasingly placed on preemptive and proactive efforts. In each case, police seek to enlist the support of reliable portions of the population when conditions are stable, and to neutralize disruptive elements before they present a threat. The broader implications of this strategy and the practical efforts to implement it will be considered in the chapters that follow. And that's the end of chapter 7.